So we started last week a series on the book of Deuteronomy and we did a bit of an overview last week. Um, just to give you a bit of background, I started thinking about the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament a couple of years ago. Um, I had a young friend who came to me one day and said, Kathy, I can't accept the Bible as the word of God because of the terrible things you read that happen to women in the Old Testament. And that kind of got me thinking. And I started thinking, well, I'm not sure that I can explain that myself. So I kind of started on this learning journey. Um, and this series has sort of come out of that a little bit. But, you know, we've only got five weeks, so we can't cover every tricky question. But, you know, in your life comms, I'd love you to um, ask the tricky questions. And if I'll try and flick some more um, notes to the LifeCom leaders this week and, and go through some stuff or think up your own um, questions. And if you need help, I'll try to answer a few things. Anyway, last week we, we talked about Deuteronomy and we said that we don't read the Old Testament the same way we read the New Testament. We read the Old Testament through the light of Christ. Jesus is the new Moses, and we're told in Deuteronomy to listen to him. So we read it through the teaching, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, and that transforms everything. So as we read through the lens of Christ, some bits of the Old Testament law disappear. The laws on, on the rules for worship, circumcision, the death penalty, they disappear, they're absorbed into Christ, and we, we no longer read them the same way. And today we're going to look a bit more specifically at the Ten Commandments. So we said last week that the law is made up of 613 separate laws. Someone counted them all up, I didn't count them. But the Ten Commandments are just the first ten of those. And so we're approaching these reading through the lens of Christ. But the Ten Commandments are kind of special out of the rest of the law. They're kind of like the constitutional core of the law. Has anyone here heard of the uh, Maxims of Delphi? The Maxims of Delphi. Anyone heard of those? I didn't think... Oh, some... Did you say kind of student of history over there? No? <laughs> so the Maxims of Delphi are an ancient Greek code of ethics, but pretty, no one, pretty much no one has heard of those today. But if you go down to Macca's across the road and you ask some random guy, hey, have you heard of the Ten Commandments? I'm pretty sure they're going to say, oh, yeah, I've heard of those. They're this 3,000-year-old legal code that has profoundly shaped and affected Western life. You know, even people who are not believers, historians who are not believers, Tom Hollands put a book out um, last year called Dominion, the history of the Western, Western world. And he talks about the profound influence that the Judeo-Christian ethic has had on Western life. And so we have this, this legal code, the Ten Commandments, that have profoundly affected our culture. And for us as believers, they're also founding principles that teach us about God's priorities. You know, they teach this twofold imperative, this vertical command to love God. The first four commandments are about our, our relationship with God. 
And they teach also this horizontal imperative to love people. Commandments 6 to 10 are about loving people. And we know that these are principles that continue into the new covenant, even as we read them through the lens of Christ. Because Jesus showed us a law in his way of of life that had a similar shape. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength, the vertical imperative. And love your neighbour as yourself, that horizontal imperative. This, this code of ethics challenges both the religious hypocrite who said, oh, yeah, I love God but doesn't care about people, as well as challenging the moral agnostic who says, well, I, I want justice in the world but I'm not interested in God. You see this balanced way of living. And this balanced way of living is still the heart of God for us, for Christians and for um, community living. So today I'm going to look at the first three commandments. Um, you know, our culture's moved away from the Judeo-Christian ethic. There's no, um, no hiding that. But I want to give you three good reasons why these commands are still valuable to us and that we can talk about in conversations with other people. So three important truths that ground Christian worship and ethics and are valuable in cultural life. And then I want to go on and take a passage from the New Testament and have a look at how those apply as we're following Jesus. So commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Now this command grounds objective truth. This is a command that says there is one God. There is a single source of truth imprinted on the world. And only because we have that single source of truth, one God, really can we argue for an objective sense of justice, of right and wrong and good and evil. Polytheism doesn't provide the basis for that objective truth. You can placate multiple gods, but you can't really align yourself with just one of them. It's the objective truth imprinted on the world by one sovereign God that allows you to argue for right and for wrong. Atheism can't provide a basis. Atheism says there is no single truth source imprinted on the world. And so right and wrong becomes a matter of personal opinion to be judged in the fickle court of, you know, public opinion. Richard Dawkins acknowledges this. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. It's a pretty empty philosophy. But our Western values don't come from that. Our Western values come from the Christian worldview. Our understanding of universal human rights. Where does that come from? The understanding that we are all made in the image of God. You know, I know that in um, cultures, you know, people talk about the postmodern culture. I'm not sure if that's where we're still at. Maybe we're post-postmodern. I kind of lost track. But, you know, people are not very comfortable with this idea of absolute truth. 
You know, my truth is about my cultural upbringing and your truth is about your sort of perceptions and we should be able to have our own idea of truth. You know, that's fair, that's tolerant, that's the way we want to live. But I, it doesn't fit with what I observe because when I observe people in this culture, they are very passionate about certain things. Caring for the environment, for example. People seem to think in this world that that's an absolute, that's a given. Or racial justice. Now, I agree with those, both, both those two things. But what I would question when people say those things without a basis for them, I'd want to say, well, what is it in your worldview that allows you to say that we should all do these things? What is it? So you shall have no other gods before me, grounds objective truth. The second commandment, I'm going to read it to you as it appears in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now let's just practice putting into, into practice what we were talking about last week. We're reading through the lens of Christ. So what happens to punishment as we read through the lens of Christ? As we read through the teaching, the life, death and resurrection of Christ, where does punishment end up? Thank you. On the cross, that's it. It's gone. So we do read this command slightly differently. But the principle of it, the principle is still something for us that we read through the lens of Christ. And this prohibition on idolatry grounds justice. It grounds justice. Let me explain why. So the Jews divinized nothing. They saw creation as a work of art. And to take a bit of that creation and, and, and bow down to the created thing was such an offence to the creator. Pagans, on the other hand, divinised everything. There's a god of the sky, there's a god of the sun, the stars, the trees, what have you. But that didn't make anything, everything special. It made everything unpredictable. Each of those deities has to be placated. And in the process of placating those deities, often people were oppressed. People were hurt as a result of that. Idolatry demeans us. We are the image bearers of God in the world. So worshipping an object, we're the ones of value. So worshipping an object and giving that thing value insults us as well as God. It's a bit like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. You know the Gollum, my precious? We've got Lord of the Rings fans here. A few, few Lord of the Rings fans. You know, he's, he worships this ring, this object, and it turns him into this nasty, wicked, you know, um, creature who is no longer able to do any good. He's just totally obsessed and totally destroyed. And, and you know, in that scene, I can never unsee in The Lord of the Rings, he leads the hobbits, you know, into that spider's cave, you know, that thing that keeps coming back to haunt me. But it's idolatry that does that to, to him. And idolatry does it to others as well, does it to us. 
When we worship something else, it demeans us, it diminishes us, and it hurts others. And this is why idolatry is linked in Deuteronomy uh, with injustice. Have Have a listen to this from Deuteronomy 12, from about verse 30. Be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do those nations serve their gods? We'll do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. You know, if you can fashion an object of silver and call it an object of worship, how much easier it is to demean people. And, you know, there's no point looking back upon those ancient cultures with, you know, on some kind of moral high ground. We might not bow down to statues, but we bow down to an awful lot of other things. The gods of pleasure... Gods of materialism, gods of um, ambition, achievement, and money. Jesus made it clear you can't serve two things, two masters, God and money. And greed still leads to mistreatment of people today. Our culture is notorious for putting profits above people. And that's why Colossians 5, verse, uh, 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and here's the big one, greed, which is idolatry. This prohibition against idolatry grounds justice, and it's a beautiful thing. Command three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. I want to suggest that that command grounds intimacy with God and sets Christian faith apart from every other faith. You know, if you give someone your name, if I introduce myself to you and give you my name, it's an invitation into relationship. And this is the same with God. As he gives his people his name, he's inviting them into intimacy. And to take that privilege lightly, whether it's to use the name of God as a swear word or simply just to be flippant about the privilege we have in in knowing God is, is a terrible thing. That literally, that command reads, don't take up the name Yahweh for worthlessness. It's a treasure, it's a precious thing to be invited into intimacy with God. And the third commandment grounds intimacy with God. So first commandment, it grounds our understanding of objective truth. The second commandment, the prohibition against idolatry, grounds our understanding of justice. And this third command grounds our understanding of intimacy, the privilege of being invited into relationship with God. So what do these commands mean for us as we look through the lens of Christ? You know, I've said I think they in principle apply. But let's go into a bit more detail. Say we're good and we don't read the zodiacs in the newspaper, we don't have any statues of Buddha in our garden, and we don't use the name of Jesus as a swear word. 
Do you think we've covered all our bases there? Are we, are we living out of the new covenant understanding of who God is? I think there's a bit more to it. And I was thinking about this this week. You can discuss this with your, with your life comms. It's kind of a fairly new thought to me. But I think the call to worship in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, is a call to worship Jesus by surrendering all to him. And I want to show you one example. It's in Matthew 19 uh, from about verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus answered. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, then keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. But what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for, ca for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they said, well, who then can be saved? It's funny, when you read Matthew chapter 19, this is the third thing that has totally frustrated the disciples in their walk with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. He just keeps the, turning things upside down. And they don't understand it. And this kind of takes the cake. You know, they're probably looking at this young man coming to Jesus and they're going, oh, this is awesome. This guy is going to great, make a great guy to put on the leadership team. You know, he's, he's very moral. He's done all the right things. He's got a good background. And he's got plenty of money. He can help him with the ministry. And then Jesus makes it so hard for this young man that he turns away and the disciples are going, what are you doing? There's a lot of discussion about this intercourse as well in the commentaries. People get very frustrated by it. Some people, you know, they're sort of taking it as, well, does this mean that everyone who is a Christian should take a vow of poverty? Or other people talk about this little phrase about where Jesus says, well, if you want to be perfect, as if it's kind of, you know, this is another category, another level of discipleship. I don't think it's easy either of those things. And for me, this little story has really spoken to me this week about what it is to worship God, what it is to follow Jesus and worship him in the new covenant. So I want to just share with you a few observations about this and you can see if this rings true for you. You know, this young man was hungry. He said, came to Jesus and said, what do I lack? He knew there was something missing. He knew that his external obedience to a set of rules was not satisfying. And we will equally be not satisfied if we um, don't go deeper in our faith than just obeying a set of external rules. But Jesus defies our boxes 
and he calls us to a radical life. He doesn't give black and white answers. And that's frustrating. But walking with Jesus is not necessarily about black and white answers. It's about this radical, upside-down kingdom, spirit-led life. And in the New Covenant, you know, the truth isn't this, um, these cold external principles. In the New Covenant, the truth is a person that we're called to follow and relate to. So this man was hungry. He, needed, he knew he needed something more. Jesus goes on and pinpoints the issue in this man's life, the point at which his life is not honouring to God, the point at which he's got an idol in his life. And it's the big M, money. Jesus invites him to deal with it and to surrender it. He says, if you want to be perfect, I found that word hard to get my head around. I looked it up in a literal translation and it says, if you want to be complete. That made more sense to me. If you want to be complete, there's this sense that we're all a little bit empty and and we need to be filled and we need to go on a journey towards completeness. So if you want to be complete, Jesus is saying, I think, get rid of the things that you are worshipping that are not me. Maybe they're possessions. Maybe they're something else. You know, Jesus comes and invites us to deal with whatever's in our hearts. That's an idol for us, our stuff. And he calls us on that journey towards becoming more and more complete. You know, you probably figured out, I, I really like speaking. I really like developing messages and, um, you know, putting something together that helps people. But it can become an idol for me. It can become an idol. At the beginning of last year, I was invited to go on the teaching team of a women's ministry. It, it wasn't some big thing. It's just a group of women that go around New South Wales um, doing women's meetings. And I was so excited. I thought, this is it. I'm finally going to be a proper speaker, you know, where you go somewhere and you give a talk, not just stay in Queanbeyan and Canberra and, you know. I was super excited and I signed up and I sent off the forms and then, of course, the lockdown hit and nobody's going anywhere to teach anybody anything. I'm stuck in my study with my collection of puppets, which don't respond very well, and my cat. And, you know, I was disappointed And it was at a time when Jesus spoke to me and said, am I really enough or is this about you? And, you know, that that was the idol for me. And I still kind of have to to work on that, but I'm, I'm thankful for the lockdown because it helped me to focus on Jesus. I think it helped a lot of us to do that. So we're all on this journey with Jesus and only you know what Jesus is pinpointing in your life. This is not about going around and telling somebody else what idols are in their life, but it's being open to the Spirit of God and let him speak to us about the idols in our life. Now, I don't want to be copping out of this story and saying it's never about money because it clearly is. And as as Australians... um, We live in a very wealthy space and I think usually at some point in our lives, in some way, shape and form, God is going to speak to us about money. But I just think it's more than that. I think it's more about worship than about wealth. And I love um, the way Mark relates this incident because he said, Jesus looked at him, the man, Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
You know, Jesus understands that we struggle with our stuff. Jesus understands that and he looks at us and loves us and calls us forward. He longs to have a deeper relationship with us and for us to see that the thing we cling to isn't as beautiful as the relationship we have with him. Like that beautiful song that Kev led us in, there's nothing greater than you. And Jesus gives us a choice. And the choice of this man was to walk away. And so my encouragement to you as we think about what it is to worship God in the new covenant, what it is to honour him and to follow Jesus as the way, the truth and the life, is to um, walk towards Jesus. Don't be like that guy who walked away. It is hard to surrender ourselves to Jesus. It is hard to give him our stuff. But at the end of the day, it's going to be better to walk towards him because if you walk away, what did it say about that young man? He walked away very sad. There's nothing that we have that will give us greater joy than walking towards Jesus and maybe they're going to be baby steps. Maybe they're going to be two steps forward, one step back, but just keep going and keep pressing on and keep surrendering yourself to him. We were made for this. We were made for worship. God's called us into relationship with him and that's the place where we operate best. And he is jealous for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. There's a, a line in an old hymn that's one of my favourites that says, um, just went blank. <laughs> Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are good and your commandments are good. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the truth and we come to you in relationship and pray that you'd help us to walk towards you, not walk away from you. We pray that you'd help us to see um, ultimately the joy of surrender to you. And we pray that you'd speak to us this week, that you'd speak to us, that you'd help us to study your word, help us to nut through the difficult bits and give us revelation more and more of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.